Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Happy Friday. I'm Emily Wilkins. In just a few minutes, my colleague David Weston is going to be speaking with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, taking us through an unexpected, lower than expected jobs numbers day or the infrastructure package. And later we'll be speaking with Republican Congressman Kevin Hearn before he and his colleagues make a crucial decision on the future of the Republican Party next week. Honestly, the the big news of today, we cannot ignore it. First Friday of the month, it's jobs day. Jobs Day is always a big deal here at Bloomberg, but today is extra notable. Experts and analysts expected we would add 1 million jobs in April. We added 266,000, way below what we were expecting. And we have some sound today from President Biden who addressed the nation. We never thought that after the first 50 or 60 days, everything would be fine. Today, there's more evidence that our economy is moving in the right direction. But it's clear we have a long way to go. Jeannie, talk to me a little bit about this. I mean, he says that we have a long way to go. It it also seems like, you know, just earlier this week, we heard from the administration painting this rosy picture, getting people vaccinated, getting back on track. Uh, What is sort of a realistic expectation here for the rest of the year? It's such a good question and so hard to know at this point. I mean, I think we were thinking a low of 900,000. I mean, it came in much, much lower, as you were just saying, than anybody expected. The president came out today and tried to make the case that the economy is growing. Jobs are coming back in the way he expected them. And I think at one point he said these were, you know, better than he would have forecast some time ago. We're doing better. But it's very, very hard and it creates some real political turmoil for the White House. On the one hand, it is probably a bit easier for him to sell his infrastructure bill at a much higher cost than the Republicans want. On the other hand, of course, he's facing a lot of questions about things like the unemployment uh, benefits. And, you know, I was really fascinated by the governor of Montana saying he is going to cancel the federal unemployment benefits to deal with the job shortage in his state. That, to me, is a warning sign for the president and the White House. Yeah, we had both the Montana governor and the South Carolina governor, Henry McMaster, go ahead and announce this week that they would be ending those pandemic unemployment benefits, that supplemental $300 that those on unemployment were getting. And their argument was that, you know, that just makes unemployment really palatable for people, sort of saying, why should we go back and try and find a job when we're already making so much as we are with unemployment? Rick, I, I want to bring you in here. You've you know been a lifelong Republican, former campaign manager for John McCain. How much do you think that unemployment benefits are playing in here? And how much do you think it might be from other causes? Well, certainly from a political point of view, the the, the it's a bouncing ball, right? I mean, even Republicans were complaining when Donald Trump uh, put those kind of benefits in his unemployment uh, benefits package uh, in the height of coronavirus last year. So uh, this is consistent, right? This isn't just because Joe Biden um, has it in his package. Um, uh, and, and there are a lot of states who are really struggling to find ways to get people back to work. One of the d- dynamics that we haven't talked about is schools. I mean, one of the reasons there is such a large unemployment number is because women out of the workforce, and they make up the vast majority of this number, and they're not going back. And, it, and, and most experts I've talked to 
indicate that until schools are back to full force and there is active child care, uh, which is also lagging behind the openings, uh, you're not going to have those women, especially women head of households who are managing children at home, uh, going to be entering in the workforce again. So I think there's a lot of unpacking still to do with this pandemic before you're going to see those consistent job numbers come down. Yeah, Rick, it's a, as you kind of pointed out, and I think Secretary Yellen also made this point today, it's schools. And, and yes, while we have seen more schools reopen, a lot of them are on a hybrid schedule. So you have, you know, if you've got a family with two kids, one might be going to school on Monday, Wednesday, the other one's going to school on Tuesday, Friday, you're having to balance those things, daycares might not be opened up yet. I mean, are these things, I know that Biden has them in his overall social infrastructure package, but obviously that package isn't going to be passing for for a number of, of months it seems like by the time it does uh, we're going if it does we're going to be much closer to the fall at that particular point uh, so I wonder Rick I mean wh what do you think the outlook is here are we going to see a lot more jobs numbers that are that are as disappointing as, as what we saw today well from what I can tell it's going to be sort of good news bad news on a regular monthly weekly basis and and until we have, you know, sort of firm openings up, I mean, part of all the money in the world can't be spent on childcare unless the schools are uh, open and, and, and people are going back to work because the businesses are opening, right? And so there's, even though there's a demand for jobs now, um, uh, you still have infrastructure that we were talking about. And these cities, uh, you know, I live in the District of Columbia and it is far from being open right now. I mean, you know, you go some other cities and it seems like the COVID never happened uh, at this stage. So we need a uniform uh, policy, maybe, you know, governors getting on board with you know, looking at how this is impacting their states. Uh, but I think that's going to drive a lot of people going back to work if they feel safe in the workforce, you know, that they're not going to get sick if they go to work. Uh, and, and if governors and mayors and, and state legislatures can guarantee that or at least ensure it as best they can, then I think you start to see some of the workforce uh, make efforts to go back into the back into the job market. And Rick, that was one of the things on that point you just made that we heard today, but didn't get as much coverage as, say, you know, the, the overall jobs number was that you've got a lot more people who are saying they are not scared of the virus in terms of going back to work. So that was really a positive sign, but didn't get as much coverage, obviously, as the overall number. And what I wanted to ask you with all your expertise in campaigning and working on the Hill, how much of this is a real PR challenge for the White House? as they, on the one hand, and you and Emily were just talking, want to really sell this bill and move it through quickly. They don't want to repeat what Obama did. On the other hand, you know, if they push this thing back much further and they try to get some compromise here, you could be running dangerously close to 2022 as terms of campaigning. Yeah, I mean, the White House has to be look at these numbers and say, we need this infrastructure bill now. And and so, you know, I think you'll see next week's congressional bipartisan meeting at the White House, uh, as, as, as President Biden said, get real, right? I mean, like, they're going to actually start talking about how to get a deal done. Republicans, on the other hand, I mean, they're looking at sort of spotty job numbers. You know, you don't want to stick your neck out too far because next week or next month could be a million, you know, employment month like um, like May was or April. And so, um, so they can't walk that plank too far. And, um, but this is going to be a very important political fight, uh, regardless of what happens in the legislation that starts to get around, especially as you've seen and you mentioned, these governors are in the act, right? They want people coming back. They're, they're needing to get uh, jobs uh, percolating in their states again so that they can improve their economic data. And so, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of opportunism, political opportunism at play in the next few months. President Biden also said today that we're going to be seeing more jobs come back from state and local jobs. And that comes from that $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus bill. Here's the sound on that. Later this month, we're going to be distributing the first tranche of the state and local assistance from the American Rescue Plan. We won't get all 1.6 million of those jobs back in one month, but you're going to start seeing those jobs and state and local workers coming back. 
Jeannie, as we do see states and localities come back, what is that actually going to look like for the average American to see those jobs coming back and those positions being filled again? I think it's such an important point that the president made. Um, you know, it, it does take time to get these people back into the workforce. He's talking about, obviously, these public workers at the state and local level, a lot of them, you know, first responders of one kind or another. And I think that's going to be welcome in these communities where obviously we've seen, you know, a huge change since COVID. Um, but I think it's also important to keep in mind, it does take time to rehire people in other sectors as well. And I think, you know, we have to be patient as people go out to try to find workers that these these things do take time. And for me, I found interesting that the Republicans, to Rick's point, are already taking this number and saying that the low number is a sign of failure of Biden's policies, and he's only been in office for, you know, a, a little over 100 days. Um, certainly not something they were saying when Donald Trump was in office for a lot longer. So I think the politics run amok here, Rick. You're right about that. John Jeannie, I, I, I must tell you, I'm not looking forward to having more parking tickets because the meter maids are now <laughs> going back to work. I mean, that's a disaster in my view. But I am curious, um, uh, you know, you're in New York, I'm in Washington, um, uh, you know, the city services uh, uh, do seem to be uh, really uh, minimum basic requirements, right? It takes forever to get a driver's license anymore. I just went through some of that myself, you know, and, uh, and I am, I am kind of curious how uh, life in New York is because uh, I, I am seeing a need to get these people back to work, even though I am probably going to get more parking tickets as a result. Emily, we don't want Rick to get any more parking tickets. Rick, for God's sakes, park, park safely and, and park legally, will you? <laughs> Rick, you got you got to join the bike crowd. There are no parking That's tickets right, with Emily. the bike crowd. That's but, a good idea. And, and I will say, I mean, we are starting to see localities say, hey, we are planning on opening up within the next couple of weeks. That includes major cities. So I think it is going to be interesting to see how this begins to develop. Um, well, hey, coming up, we're going to continue to go deeper in today's job report, what it all means for the upcoming infrastructure package. We're going to be speaking with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, as well as Oklahoma Republican Kevin Hearn. Coming up next, I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins. I'm here tonight, today, along with Bloomberg Ace political contributors, Jeannie Sean Zeno and Rick Davis. We are waiting with bated breath for Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who will be joining our colleague David Weston to break down the crazy jobs day that we saw with the jobs numbers falling far below expectations, as well as talk about that ever-present infrastructure plan that Congress is continuing to work on. They're finally coming back next week. Uh, but Jeannie, Rick, I want to spend a minute uh, digging a little more into what we heard about the jobs today. We're still down about 8 million jobs from where we were pre-pandemic. And today we heard Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen suggesting that it's going to be a while before we're really going to see all of those jobs to come back. In addition, we also have the debt limit to deal with. Here's the sound on that. I believe we will reach full employment next year. But today's numbers also show that we're not yet finished. There are scenarios in which, um, so, you know, sometime during the summer, um, we would, the extraordinary measures would run out. No, Rick, this was interesting. We had initially some analysts telling us that we had until October 1st to deal with this debt limit. Why might we have to wind up dealing with it sooner than expected? And is that going to be a problem for, for Congress? Yeah, a lot of it is just timing of funds, right? So Treasury Department has its hands on the controls. They decide when things get funded and when it doesn't. And I have no doubt that the strategy for the Biden administration is to get capital into the system. Uh, it's been certainly his stated uh, strategy all along since he became president. And so my guess is they've had those uh, they've had those vents open all the way. Everything that the Treasury could do to pump capital into the market uh, uh, has probably been done now. Um, uh, the result of that is you burn through cap 
cash faster than uh, than the budget was originally designed to do. So Treasury can do the opposite, right? They can start to dial down those expenditures, hold off on things to fund, you know, until they can catch up, you know, with the funding. At the end of the day, it's not unusual for an administration to go back to Congress and 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 lift the debt ceiling so that they can continue to function. Um, uh, but it's just another political dynamic especially at a time toward the end of the summer, early fall, when they probably are hopeful that they would be getting a, you know, big chunk of the, the infrastructure bill done. So uh, you can see a big omnibus coming down this pike that would include a uh, debt payment ceiling uh, lift uh, if, if, if they can make progress on their legislative agenda. Rick, you're, you're so right. I mean, late summer it tends to be very much crunch time in D.C. Lawmakers usually have their eye on that long August recess. It's kind of a time that things need to get done because they come back after Labor Day and then it's suddenly everything at once. They have to pass government's funding. They have other programs that are running out that need to be refunded or at least extended for a period of time. Uh, Jeannie, when it comes to all of this stuff that is on Congress's plate, how is the debt limit going to factor in? Is this something we're going to see bipartisan support on, or is this something that Democrats are just going to have to try and use one of their budget reconciliations for? You know, I, I don't think we know the answer for that, but I think at the end of the day, um, they're going to have to lift that debt ceiling. I, to your point, there is going to, you know, it, it, they're going to be crunched, as you mentioned, as they get into that summer break. So they are going to have to take action. So whether Democrats end up doing it alone, I think Republicans will end up going along with it. But, you know, I think one of my big questions, um, it, you know, on the politics of this thing is, Aren't Republicans and and I don't know, you know, Rick, if you as a as a Republican can answer this, do you think that they are on the wrong side of the argument here, arguing for this taking away an unemployment benefit? I mean, you know, people like the money coming in from government. So, what kind of political move is this on the part of the Republicans to argue that it should be taken away? Well, I think it's just a matter of sort of moving forward, right? I mean, you can't stay on unemployment uh, forever in an extreme situation like um, like COVID, uh, like the pandemic. And, and and you'll notice that the theme coming from Republicans, especially on Capitol Hill, but a lot of governors, too, has been the sooner we reopen, sooner people can go back to work, sooner the schools can reopen, sooner we can get child care, sooner everything gets back to normal. And so, you know, the Biden administration comes and says, oh, we're going to pay you not to work. And that runs counter to that theme. So uh, I think Republicans believe they are on the right side of, of the public moving toward reopening, moving toward getting back to work, moving toward things opening up. And, um, and they're willing to take the gamble that, um, that we're in this inflection point where an extra $300 to keep someone from going into work. Remember, you don't get the 300 if you go to work. And so you got to make a choice. And a lot of people are making a choice to stay at home and take the government money. And a Republican, I don't know any Republicans who think it's better to be on the government dole than on a private payroll. No, Rick, it's interesting that, that you mentioned sort of the Republican stance on this. I actually, I had a tweet today and was very surprised to see it responded uh, from Dr. Roger Marshall, uh, the, one of the senators. Uh, uh, and he said, you know, there are certainly people who need access to increased employment benefits um, during the heart of this pandemic, but we shouldn't be in the business of creating these lucrative government dependency. And I'm wondering, is is he kind of right in a sense? Is there a need to make sure that those who are still hurting during this pandemic and for whatever reason really can't get back out there yet into the job market are taken care of while we are still very much in this pandemic? I think we there were yesterday 40, more than 47,000 people got coronavirus it's still very much here yeah and it's in and and it's in uh, other you know certain places more than others right west coast california seems to be opening up and doing better a uh, lot of good reports on the number of covid patients coming down but but oregon and washington have a surge going on so it, it is spotty and and the politics on this is spotty right so you know if you're in a state where you're getting back to normal and and, and you really need to uh, prime the pump of economic expansion. You need those people going back to work. And, and the federal government doesn't have eyes on that, right? When they say you get 300 bucks uh, you know, for, for not going to work, they don't say only in places where there's still a high concentration of COVID. They do it for everybody. And so it is counterintuitive in a lot of states where they, they, are, they, they can open up, they want these people back to work. 
people by nature want to work. And so if you take away the stimulus to get them to stay at home, they're going to go back and, and find a job. And from what we can tell anecdotally, a lot of employers are looking for people to come back. They need these jobs filled in order to gear up their their businesses that have been basically shuttered you know, for the last year. And I think it's important to just add here that while this is what the case that is being made by many Republicans and some economists, the president did push back on this, as Emily said earlier, when he was asked about this in his statement earlier today, he was asked if it was the case that these unemployment benefits were contributing to people not being willing to return to work. And the president said, there is not evidence in the data, or I think the quote was nothing is measurable. There's nothing measurable here. So I do think it's important that, you know, they, they are making this case that this is a fact, and I'm not sure the data yet supports it. So I just I do want to add that. Absolutely. No, that's a great point, Jeannie. I also want to pivot to something else that happened today, and it's actually going to be going forward into next week. You know, we heard earlier this week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying he's, quote, 100 percent focused on stopping the Biden administration. But the White House today said the president will not be holding a grudge when he has infrastructure meeting next week with Senator McConnell. Remember, that's the one that's happening on May 12th. Uh, that's going to have the Republican and Democratic leaders of the House and the Senate. So McConnell, it's going to have Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the first time that all four of them are really going to be sitting down with President Biden in the White House. And we have sound on that from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The president's view uh, is that um, uh, he's ready to have a clean slate and let's uh, welcome the leaders here. He also has said, uh, and we're not at this point, that uh, inevitably uh, there will be some strong disagreements with Republicans. And we know that. He was in the Senate for 36 years. He's certainly no stranger to that. Uh, and that he's ready to debate, he's ready to, uh, but he's also ready to uh, press forward and uh, work, doing work on behalf of the American people. Jeannie, what should we be looking for here next week? What are you going to be waiting to hear from the Republicans, from the Democrats, from Congress versus the White House after this meeting? You know, I, I think the biggest thing I'm going to be listening for is, are is the administration you know, looking like they are willing to negotiate on any of these big issues, breaking the bill up, as, the, as, as has been discussed. Are they moving more in the direction of something like Shelley Moore Capito, both in terms of the size and scope of this thing, in terms of the amount of money being spent, and how they define infrastructure? So any movement from the Democratic side. I also am really curious about the timing here. You know, Joe Biden has made the case, as has his team, that they do not want to repeat what the Obama administration did when they negotiated, uh, you know, ad nauseum with the Republicans and, of course, ended up with watered down policy, a lot of delays and then a bills that they didn't like and, and weren't comfortable taking out to the American public. Biden has been clear he doesn't want to repeat that. And so for me, I think the timing here is a big issue. I think if I could just add, I think an another factor here, I would love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings, of course, but another factor here is, is this really an effort to in good faith negotiate or is this to show Joe Manson and Kristen Sinema and others that they are making a, you know, they are showing that they uh, are acting in a bipartisan manner, even if, you know, in actuality, they're going to repeat what they did with the COVID bill. And in, you know, when it comes to the actual bill itself, not be willing to move. So whether this is truly negotiation or not is something I'm curious about. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Gene, that's a great point. I mean, this is a little bit reminiscent of when back when they were talking about the coronavirus stimulus bill, that 1.9 package. President Biden met with all of those 10 Republican senators and they had this White House meeting and everyone came out and said that there was good progress made. And then not a single Republican wound up supporting that bill when it actually went through. And Jeannie, you're, you're absolutely right to point out that it was this concern from Democrats that they did not want to wind up weakening the package as they felt that they had done under President Obama. But Rick, I want to ask you a little bit here. I'm always thinking ahead to 2022, always thinking ahead to the next election, because that's what all of the lawmakers are doing as well. You know, if President Biden has this meeting, but doesn't wind up actually coming up with a bill, an infrastructure bill at least, that Republicans can support, is that going to hurt Democrats come the midterms? Yeah, I think the, the, the Democrats need to produce something that's a job builder, right? And the best thing they've got is, um, is, the, is the infrastructure bill. Uh, all the rest of the legislation, the other $3.5 billion that Biden has on the table for this year, uh, which will be the impact that you're talking about for 2022, is government programs, support programs, and, you know, uh, more sort of um, uh, wealth, not, I can't say welfare related, but like, you know, things that uh, are going to really appeal to his constituency, but not across the board. And so, you know, the question really is, I think, does he have the votes to do this, right? I mean, he's right on the edge, different from Obama, who had a comfortable margin. Um, uh, Joe Biden's got no margin in the Senate. And so if he thinks he can get $4 trillion passed through, he ought to call the question and move as quick as he can. If he can't, then he ought to cut a deal with Republicans and get $600 billion right away. Do it as quick as you can. Because the one thing that I've learned in politics is delay only helps those who do nothing. And if Joe Biden actually wants to avoid that, then getting deals done and moving quickly you know, with this kind of support is, is the only way to get success. Rick, you have touched on such a Washington truism, which is when you have the votes, take the vote. And I think that sort of speaks to the fact that at this point, you do have, um, and you know what, I'm just getting word, we actually have Secretary Buttigieg with us, so we are going to go to David Weston. Thank you so much, Emily Wilkins. And it's a delight and a privilege to have you. Mr. Secretary, that's Pete Buttigieg on the line. So I understand you just came from a meeting at the White House with the President and the rest of the Jobs Cabinet. What did you learn at the meeting? Well, it was a great opportunity for members of the Jobs Cabinet to discuss what we've been seeing and hearing as we've been communicating with the American people and, and, and traveling to communities to talk about the impact of the jobs plan. And every member of the Cabinet who was there shared stories about uh, communities that saw what it would mean to invest in infrastructure there, the enthusiasm that you see in uh, among mayors, uh, among workers, uh, and among business leaders as well to do something big. Uh, so it was a great opportunity to sync up on our different experiences and uh, to hear the president reinforce his commitment to making sure that we deliver in a way that's not just going to help us in the near term, but really set up America to compete economically for the rest of our lifetimes. As you know, Mr. Secretary, and the rest of us have memorized now, it's 266,000 jobs were created last month. It's a good number. In any other regular month, it would be a great number. At the same time, we still have something like 8 million people who don't have jobs who did before the pandemic. It was disappointing to economists who expected as much as 1 million. Let's talk specifically about transportation. Uh, to what extent did transportation have a role in that? And for example, the chip shortage for automobiles, problems at the ports. Well, there's certainly a concern with the, sh uh, the chip shortage. It's one of the reasons you've seen the, the president and his economic team so focused on supply chain issues for the country. I mean, some of these are concerns that have been brewing for a long time, and, and they are going to impact our competitiveness if we don't do something. Uh, at the same time, we're also seeing a, uh, an increasing uh, safe return to travel. And uh, part of what the rescue plan did was avoid some of the worst of uh, what we were facing just a few months ago. You know, when we saw flight attendants being told that they could tear up their furlough notices, when we saw uh, transit agencies that were getting ready to cut routes and lay off workers, uh, get uh, news that help was on the way. Uh, we, we should, I know we're all, always trying to take the next hill and, and rightly talking about the jobs plan, but let's remember what the rescue plan is doing right now and, and really helped us from going off the cliff. And I think that's part of why over the last three months, all in, 
Uh, we've added, on average, 500,000 jobs. Uh, we've got a long way to go uh, to the tune of millions. And that's why the president has never let up and said, OK, job done. We're good to go. He's pushing us to do everything we can to keep building a stronger economy. As the president pointed out, as did Secretary Yellen today at the at the White House, one of the other things that Secretary Yellen mentioned was that one constraint on filling some of the jobs may be a concern on people's part for getting back on public mass transit because of fears about uh, safety and health. Is there anything that the Transportation Department can do to help with that problem? Well, we've been working to make sure that uh, public transit is safe. It's one of the reasons we backed up transit agencies with that mask mandate, the same as we backed up uh, the airlines with that, to make sure that it was very clear what was expected and uh, it didn't feel like it was uh, up to a, a bus operator, for example, to have to handle a public health decision that we really needed to make together as a country. Uh, so uh, obviously each transit agency has uh, its, its own plans for uh, any changes that are underway. But uh, what I'll say is that, you know, we the, the result of the steps we've been taking, uh, supporting these agencies with funding uh, and with other resources is precisely to make sure that it is not a barrier. Lack of transportation is not a barrier to people getting to work. Uh, Secretary Buttigieg, you have become something of a point person on the infrastructure you mentioned just a moment ago. Let's talk about uh, the progress you are making from your point of view in getting for, moving forward with the $2.25 trillion proposal from President Biden. Are you getting any bipartisan movement here? We talked with Marsha Blackburn earlier this week, and she said she'd be willing to go along with something like the $600 billion proposal put forward by Shelley Moore Capito. Is there negotiation going on? Are you taking steps forward on that? Yeah, that's exactly the process that's underway right now. We welcome the fact that uh, Senator Capito and her Republican colleagues came forward with a specific proposal. Uh, they have a lot of interest in at least parts of what we've been working on, the jobs plan, especially areas like roads and bridges. Of course, we believe that uh, less traditional things like uh, Internet infrastructure and, and care infrastructure belong there. But uh, that give and take is, is exactly what the process is about. And that's what I think you're going to see, uh, uh, certainly, especially as we look to next week with uh, so many members returning to Washington. Exactly. And, and in fairness, my understanding is there is 60, $600 billion put in, I'm sorry, $60 billion put in for the uh, uh, broadband uh, access, not for the care, but there is money put in the capital bill, as I understand it, for broadband access, correct? Yeah, I think broadband is one of the areas where you're going to see uh, some healthy bipartisan interest, especially when you look at how many rural areas are among those that, uh, uh, that, that have been left out. So, you know, that's just one of the things I think we can build on, as, as well as the, the areas like the roads and the bridges. You know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot to work through in terms of the math, look at the baseline, see what it would really mean to make a big investment. I, I think the, the focus here is to make sure that we do something big enough to meet the moment. We have fallen to 13th place in infrastructure as a country. And we shouldn't be going to all this trouble just to do what it takes to hold on to 13th place. Uh, we've got to position America to compete with places like China that are investing uh, huge amounts right now. And we've got to position workers to succeed in the years ahead. And, and uh, that's something that we hope can be a bipartisan cause, even if there are some differences about exactly how to get there and exactly how to pay for it. And one way maybe to get there is to break it into pieces. Uh, is it possible to take the part that, again, Senator Blackburn and uh, Shelley Moore Capital are saying they do? Would that make sense from your point of view? Well, we believe these things fit together. It's why the president announced them as one plan. But these are exactly the kinds of things that get negotiated as you sit down with uh, members on both sides of the aisle. There are a lot of different congressional mechanisms that, that could get this done. And uh, we're really ready to talk about uh, just about anything. The, the, the only red line uh, that I've heard from the president, uh, well, there are two. One, uh, that uh, he's committed to not raising taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. Uh, and the other is that it is uh, unacceptable to do nothing. We've, we've got to do something. We've got to act uh, relatively quickly. Secretary Buttigieg, let me put together two priorities of the president. We have, on the one hand, infrastructure, clearly a priority. On the other, climate. And I wonder how those fit together. If you got all that you wanted today to put into infrastructure, it would involve a lot of concrete. Concrete is not green. How can you address that issue? That's a real challenge, isn't it? Well, there's no such thing as an infrastructure decision that's not also a climate decision. The question is whether we're going to recognize that. Now, what I find so exciting about this moment and so exciting about this plan is that this is our chance to demonstrate that climate is also how we can create jobs 
for the future, whether we're talking about concrete, uh, which includes research to uh, find more of the, the means that are uh, less carbon intensive, potentially even carbon negative uh, when it comes to concrete, uh, whether it's making sure the electric vehicle revolution is made right here in America with American workers making union wages at American companies on American soil. All of the steps we need to take around transportation can also be job-creating investments in our climate future. That's how all of these things fit together in the president's vision, and that's the case that we're making to the American people, too. Okay, so let me, Mr. Secretary, finally come back to the jobs question and tie it into the infrastructure. Very concretely, no pun intended, but very specifically, how many jobs would be created over the next year from the infrastructure? Well, look, uh, most of the scoring that we've seen in, in terms of the millions of jobs that are going to be created through this plan look at a longer time horizon than that. What I will say is that there are shovel-ready projects right now in communities uh, all over the country that uh, could go as soon as there was funding, and, and uh, theoretically we could move that as soon as a, a bill got to the president's desk to sign it. But let me be clear. Uh, we are, of course, rightly concerned about getting through this year. But this jobs plan is about making sure we have a strong economy for the rest of our lifetimes. Uh, this is not uh, just about getting through the business cycle. This is about making sure that America is prepared to compete through the 2030s, 2040s, 2050s. Because right now, we're relying on infrastructure that was built in the 1950s. And each passing year, or for that matter, each passing day that we continue to do that, has safety, economic, and climate implications that we've got to address. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. That is Pete Buttigieg. He is the Secretary of Transportation. And I turn it now back over to Emily Wilkins, my colleague. David, thank you so much. I am here with Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, the Bloomberg political contributor A-Team. Uh, Rick, you know, very fascinating interview there with Secretary Buttigieg, uh, said that this package needs to be big enough to meet the moment, kind of as we were saying right before that interview, that there is that uh, danger that Democrats perceive in having the package be a little bit too small. But we also heard the secretary invoke China. Uh, Rick, we keep hearing the administration use China, invoke China when they're talking about infrastructure and the need for the U.S. to remain competitive on the global stage. How much truth is there to that? And how much of this is just President Biden talking about something that he knows has bipartisan support? Secretary Buttigieg say that we were 13th on the, the international scale of, uh, you know, modernized infrastructure. And he, and he invokes China in that regard because they're ahead of us, right? He didn't say which, which slot they're in. But, um, but this is a, a part of our rallying cry in this administration to get public support. We want to be better than China, right? So, you know, find a common enemy and unite the public around something that we think we can get ahead of them on. Uh, it unites uh, votes in Congress. There's no question that Republicans and Democrats alike don't want to be um, uh, less competitive against China. Uh, that's becoming more and more of a uh, competition on the global scale, not just domestically. And so I think he's plugging into a very positive message that this administration has latched hold of. Um, you know, even even President Trump latched hold of the China um, competition message at the end of his term. Um, and so I, I think that is a, a smart way to sell this package in, in that it, it is going to help uh, enhance our ability to compete. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Excellent. Well, right now we are joined by Republican Congressman Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to quickly get your take on the job numbers as that's such a big story today. I mean, what was your takeaway from the numbers and what do you think needs to happen next? Well, clearly it was a disappointment to everyone and, and it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. But it's a great disappointment to everyone, uh, whether you're uh, you know, you're down the middle or where you're left-leaning liberal media outlets, you're, you're all disappointed. You don't, you're making all kinds of excuses, but 
the reality is I've been a job creator for 35 years before I came to Congress two years ago. And I've got people calling me from all over my district, the state, and across the country on many of the meetings we're having. And everybody's just – the worst thing as a business owner you want to compete with is the federal government for jobs. And, and that's what's happening for the American workers is the, the administration has gone out there and incentivized Americans not to work and to wait for the money to run out. And it's very unfortunate. Uh, we had, as everyone knows, very bipartisan bills to – to go after the COVID uh, you know, pandemic last year, we passed 4.5 billion a trillion, excuse me, trillion dollars in, in care last year, and I, I was on the forefront of talking about we have to be careful that we don't pay more to people to stay home than to go back to work, and and the Democrats agreed by the way last year they they agreed to phase out uh, the, the care the help on April 5th, and then when President Biden came in, he incentivized more people to stay home by extending this out to September 6th. I argued during the, uh, the, I'm on Ways and Means, and I argued during our markup, our amendment process, that we should phase this out to allow people to come back to work. And uh, I was called uh, all kinds of uh, crazy names for proposing that Americans should be able to get back to work. And we're seeing the result of that now. Uh, the American worker is saying, I'm not going back to work until the, the money runs out. So, Congressman, it's so good to talk to you. And you you may have heard when you were just on the line that our colleague David Weston was talking to the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, about these, uh, you know, several things and the jobs you were just talking about, but also about these meetings coming up next week on infrastructure. So what is your view on where you stand in terms of breaking up the infrastructure bill? And how high are you willing to go in your Republican uh, colleagues in the House. Well, we all saw that the president proposed uh, a $2.25 trillion plan. Now we're hearing that could be even higher than that based on some uh, some studies after the fact. We know that, you know, a traditional infrastructure of roads, bridges, and ports, and, and, and airports, also broadband is critically important. Uh, that, uh, that area is not being accurately addressed it's roughly you know 500 to 700 billion dollars is the range you, know, you could pick pick a number in there i served five years as the finance committee chair on the oklahoma turnpike authority i think i have a pretty good insight of what infrastructure is and what the cost per mile of road is to do that and take care of bridges and ports so i'm not speaking as a as a political person i'm speaking as someone who's got practical experience in this area i, I understand the secretaries uh want to pivot out of this disappointing uh job report and talk about infrastructure. I, I agree with him on that, by the way. The infrastructure is critically important to our country. In fact, if you look at historically, uh, every great society in the history of this planet has failed because it couldn't maintain its infrastructure. And we've done a very poor job of, of getting together and very, uh, putting a very targeted bill together to attack infrastructure. I know we have differences on how to pay for that, but I think we can come together on that as well. Congressman, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the people who are trying to actually rebuild their businesses uh, in this sort of, you know, I, I hate to even say it, post-COVID environment. Oklahoma, your state, uh, is uh, starting to reopen and come back. And, 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 and that's the tug on these people who are currently receiving unemployment assistance from the federal government in excess of a normal unemployed person. And so they're, they're competing. What, what are you hearing from the business community in your district, in your state, as to what frustrations they're having to reopen. I mean, is it the resident? You know, is it the the, the restaurants and and transportation hubs? Is it other businesses that are having trouble getting workers to come back? Well, I would, I would tell you it's all of the above, and we have to remember the history of this uh, federal unemployment assistance on top of state unemployment insurance. It goes back to all the way back to the beginning when we looked at how do we give more to the New York unemployed than we do, say, to the Oklahoma unemployed. And based on the systems being different per state, we just all agreed that $600 per state or per week per state would be would great. That would be kind of level, be easy to roll out and quickly get out to those folks. Along with PPP, we wanted to keep American workers in their jobs, their skill sets to those jobs so that American businesses could quickly reopen. And I worked feverishly on that. Uh, we know that it saved roughly 51 million jobs. And then let's fast forward to what happened uh, just you know in the in the conversations and the negotiations with the 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief bill. It was originally 400 dollars per week coming out of the House. The Senate, uh, being very uh, prudent, at least trying to negotiate, got it down to 300 dollars per week. 
so here we are today, and we moved this all the way out to September 6th. I suggested in the House markup that we sort of phase that out on the federal side, that we go from 400, again, House being 400 at that time, 400, 300, 200, 100, so we can sort of slightly nudge people to move on back into jobs. We know that there are jobs open all across all sectors. You mentioned restaurants. You mentioned you know, agriculture, construction, manufacturing. All of these folks, as I talk to them, are, are just dying for workers, and they can't get even people to show up to, to even do an interview. They're paying as much as $50 an interview uh, to get people to show up, and they won't show up for that just to come interview. And, and now what we're seeing is uh, you know, people who are business-minded uh, governors like my friend Greg Gianforte, who just became the Montana governor, uh, first Republican governor of Montana for 20 years, doing taking that COVID relief money for, for unemployment and creating incentives for folks to go back to work. I believe our governor here in Oklahoma will be doing that. Other states are looking at that as well. I know that will be a big topic on the Republican governor's uh, meeting next week when they have that, uh, or in two weeks, rather. So I think these are folks that are understanding that we've got to get American workers back into jobs, get them back on the journey to the American dream, so that they can under, you know, get back and get this economy resurrected. But this is not the right direction. When you have every person out there that's in the, in the business of predicting job growth, predict you know, 978,000 jobs will be created, and only 266, and then, then the secretary and others are calling this a success, I, I'm not sure where they're getting their information from. Hey, Congressman, I'm a, I'm a little bit curious because I've been listening to the, all of the news today and you've, I've heard Republicans like yourself say, you know, the problem is the unemployment assistance that individuals are getting. But then Democrats are saying that the issue is actually more about individuals not being able to go back to work because they still have kids to watch, they still have childcare, and also just concerns about going back in general. Yesterday, more than 47,000 Americans got coronavirus despite the fact that we now have more widely available vaccines. So how do we know that it's the unemployment assistance rather than some of these other factors that Democrats have been speaking about today? Well, first of all, it's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It should be an American worker issue. And when you hear businesses crying for help to get help to come open their businesses back up and you have businesses with signs on their door saying we would be open, but we can't get help. And you're in states where more than 50 percent, 60 percent of the population has been vaccinated. And some states, even more than that, have gotten their second shot and you still can't get people back to work. There isn't anything else uh, left other than the fact that they're getting paid more to be at home uh, than to go back to work. Congressman, I also want to ask, just because you're a business guy, you've owned a McDonald's franchise, there's been a debate going on right now about the minimum wage and about what some of these franchises should pay people. The argument is that they need at least $15. I know that individuals like yourself from rural areas say that that's too much for some of these towns, that $15, you know, it, it, it might go a certain distance in, in D.C. or Seattle or New York, but it doesn't go the same in these more rural areas. At the same point, there are concerns that Americans, you know, they are having stagnant wages. And so what do you think the right solution is here when it comes to the minimum wage? Well, I've, I've said all along, and I've said this out of fact, not just political speak, uh, from long before I got into politics, again, two years ago, is that every state has a different cost of basket of goods. And New York clearly is a much more expensive place to live than, say, Oklahoma City in, in Oklahoma. And the this, this state of uh, New York raised their minimum wage, I think, to $20 an hour a couple of years ago with an with a iteration of getting up to 22 23 if you're in the boroughs. And Oklahoma, you know, it's still at the federal level, as is Delaware, by the way, where the president's been. He had four years to go lobby to raise that minimum wage, and he, he seemed not to talk about that until he became the president. And I, this, this fight for 15 and all the different iterations of that, are, are, I, I understand that, but the the, the fact of the matter is, is that when you look at providing a living wage in Oklahoma, it's 10 to $11 an hour. I don't know anybody in years that has hired at minimum wage to be able to get people. In fact, if you look back prior to COVID, the, the fastest growing wages, double-digit growth in wages, was at the lower end of the spectrum, not the high end, the low end, which meant there was, I know there's a whole narrative of supply and demand. I, I actually like to refer it as the demand and supply issue. The demand for jobs uh, and getting people in those jobs was very high with a limited supply. So businesses went out and had to pay more for labor, which is the way our country has always been founded 
and, and, the, and the idea of capitalist free enterprise that you pay people. And if you don't, you can't stay open. You can't stay in business. So you pay the wages that you get people. And we're in a free economy, a free society where people can go. They don't have to work anywhere. They're not mandated to pay union wages like the PRO Act would dictate. And so this is an opportunity for us to get back to the economy. We had just 15 months ago, we saw in a very short window, if you go back to pre-COVID that day, let's say March 13th, and you back up six months, we saw a glimpse of what America could be. We saw 3.5% unemployment. We saw rising wages across all spectrums. Across, We saw the, the lowest unemployment in history for many of the diversity groups, the lowest in 70 years for women. This is what America needs to be. And we had limited, very limited interaction of the government reaching into the pockets of the small businessmen and women. And that's what businesses want to return to. Absolutely. Congressman, I also need to ask, you know, you guys are coming back to D.C. next week and House Republicans on Wednesday are set to remove Congresswoman Liz Cheney as conference chair. This follows a number of cases where she has not been in step with other members of the party, most notably when she's pushed to get back against former President Trump on the validity of the 2020 election. You've publicly called on Cheney to resign her position. You wrote that a good leader must be willing to go for bat for all that they've lit even if it means personal sacrifice. And I'm wondering, have you felt that Ch Congresswoman Cheney has not gone to bat for you? I mean, how have you been affected by what she said? Well, personally, I, I, I don't know Liz very well. I know that's strange being in Congress. Uh, you know, there's a lot of members on both sides, and you get to know some better than others. And my personal conversation with uh, Congresswoman Cheney was, as a leadership person, is that you, you represent, when you take those roles as the number three person in the conference, you have to look at everybody. I've been a leader in the McDonald's level on a system-wide basis. My, my opinions are my opinions, and I'd love to have my opinions imposed upon everyone. But in a leadership position, you have to listen to everyone. You have to lead the entire conference, not you, yourself, and, and you know eight or nine other people. So Congressman, and, and so though... I'm wondering, sure. though, there are members of your conference who are Republicans and have Republican values, but are not particular fans of President Trump and agree with some of the stuff that Congresswoman Cheney has been saying by removing her from leadership. Is the Republican Party isolating all conservatives who don't necessarily agree with Trump's stance on the election? You know, honestly, I don't know that that's the entire reason she's being removed. Uh, I, I think she's also lambasted other Republicans that if we didn't think the way she did, that they were somehow inferior. And as I share with uh, Congresswoman Cheney, uh, I've been around a lot of CEOs in my working career that uh, some were really talented and they ascended to their job because of their talents and their abilities. Others have ascended to their role, and many in America have, because they've stepped on others to push them down so that they could achieve their role. And that's what Congresswoman Cheney had. It's not just the fact that she supported uh, uh, against Donald Trump, but it's the fact that she said the rest of us that didn't support her views were somehow inferior to her. Well, some strong words there from Congressman Kevin Hearn. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. That is it for today's show. Thank you so much to Jeannie Vanzano and Rick Davis for taking the time joining us here today. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.